Hello, and welcome to the Park Church Podcast. I'm your host, James Lapine, and I'm so glad that you guys are here with us today. Uh, Every time that we do this show, we bring on a a well-known author or speaker. We take their ideas and we distill them down into practical next steps that you can incorporate into your everyday life. Uh, Our guest today is uh, Dr. Wesley Hill. He's an assistant professor of biblical studies at the Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. He's also the author of Washed and Waiting, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality, and uh, the book Spiritual Friendship, Finding Love in the Church as a Celibate Gay Christian. Today on the show, we talk about why he wrote those books, uh, why he identifies as a gay celibate Christian, how the church can disciple those who are same-sex attracted, how to find friendship after college, uh, when it might be appropriate to end a friendship, and a host of of other topics. So I think you'll really enjoy it. It's a great show. Um, We mention a lot of resources on this episode, and you can find all of those at parkchurchdenver.org slash podcast. There you'll click on the uh, link that says Wesley Hill Interview, and then you'll find uh, everything that you need. So Uh, If you enjoy this episode, I'd ask you to do two things. Number one, subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss out when we post another show. And number two, rate and review us while you're there in iTunes. Uh, That will help other people find the show. Um, Yeah, that's all I've got for you now. Let's go ahead and jump into the interview with Wes Hill. Hey, Wes, how's it going? Good, James. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. Excited to chat with you today. Um, let's go ahead and jump right in. I'd love to, to start from the beginning uh, and talk about your experience uh, growing up in the South in a conservative culture, in the church, um, while experiencing attraction to the same sex. Tell us about that and what, what that was like. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I think when I look back on my upbringing, a couple things stand out. And the first thing is just that it was a deeply loving, deeply Christian uh, environment that I grew up in. I mean, as you say, it was, it was a conservative culture, but um, as we know, there are different types of conservatism and some of them can be really quite damaging and, and some of them can be filled with a lot of love. Um, and mine was definitely the latter uh, feel, filled with a lot of uh, love. My, my parents are, um, still married, uh, very strong Christian people. And, you know, my earliest memories are of them sort of teaching me stories from the Bible. And we still have drawings that I made when I was a young kid of scenes from the Bible stories that they were teaching me. And, and, um, you know, like a lot of evangelical kids, I, around four or five or six years old, I asked if I could invite Jesus to come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. And my parents were there to, to walk me through that. Um, and yet at the same time, as you say, I, as I grew older and went through puberty, I, I realized that I was experiencing what people will often refer to as same sex attraction or homosexuality or, or, or gay, uh, desire, same sex orientation, a lot of different labels we could put on it. But, you know, I realized around 13 or 14 that that was happening to me. I was going through that personally. And in spite of all the, the love and, and affirmation that I felt from my from my church, from my youth pastor, from my friends, and certainly from my parents, uh, I experienced a lot of embarrassment and shame and fear about confiding this in anyone. 
And um, so, so I, I look back on that as somewhat paradoxical. You know, I, I knew that I was loved. I knew that I uh, was loved by God and, and the people around me. But I also uh, felt that this was something, what I was experiencing was so uh, unusual. And so um, the way things ought not to be that I didn't feel that I could talk about it. And so I, you know, I remember uh, thinking I'll, I'll hopefully make it to college and uh, having never told anyone about this, and then maybe when I get to college, something will change, and and I can actually go to my grave without having told anyone about this. So, mm. so I look back, I look back, you know, both with fondness for the way I was raised, and with, um, you know, a sense of sadness and wistfulness that I that I, um, you know, for for whatever reason, uh, felt that that this was not something I could really process with the people who loved me most, and. And I, you know, I think you're right to, to phrase your question the way you did. You know, what, what was it like growing up in the South and the conservative culture? And, you know, I, th- I think I'm even now just realizing the ways that that culture, although it has many good gifts and graces, it's, it, it's, it, in my experience, it was not the kind of culture that encouraged vulnerability about difficult things. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think there were ways that it, it reinforced my sense that, you know, this is something I've got to try to figure out on my own. This is not something I can talk with others about. So uh, it was a mixed bag. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I I think there is a uh, some sort of uh, silent sufferer role that we see in Southern culture where, uh, you know, don't talk about what's bothering you. Don't bring it up. Figure it out on your own. Um, there isn't an openness or, like you said, a vulnerability that, that really uh, – is uh, cultivated in the South for some reason. Mm. So tell us, um, in your book, Washington Waiting, you talk about uh, the transition into college and when you started to experience uh, some relationships where you did feel like you could open up and be vulnerable. Um, so t- talk to us about that book, what prompted you to write it, and what that transition from from your uh, childhood into adolescence into college, uh, what that all looked like. Yeah, I, I wrote a book, um, as you say, titled Washington Waiting. Uh, the subtitle is Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to be doing this podcast with you because it gives me a chance to, to let your listeners know that there's actually a second edition of that book that's coming out this fall. It oh, should great. be October from Zondervan. And, and um, so the first edition came out in 2010. Okay. I wrote it uh, shortly after I um, had graduated college and, and done an internship at a church for two years. And um, the book is sort of, uh, I think the publisher used the phrase on the back cover, theological memoir. And I, I sort of like that because I think that captures, uh, you know, the book is trying to tell my story. So it's a memoir in that sense, but it's also trying to understand my story in light of the gospel and in light of Christian theology. And so it's it's a theological memoir. Yeah. But um, yeah, the, the reason I wrote it was... I was looking for a book, you know, when I was in my teenage years and when I was in college, I really wanted to find a book written by somebody who said, you know, number one, I'm same sex attracted. I have a, I have a homosexual orientation. Number two, that is not something that's really shifted or or changed dramatically for me in any way. And number three, I'm, I'm holding to a traditional biblical Christian sexual ethic, which means that I don't feel that I can, um, you know, endorse uh, gay sex as a legitimate uh, thing for Christians to celebrate and, and bless. And, you know, I, I looked and looked and looked for a book like that, and I couldn't find one. You know, I found books sort of on the far right that said, well, 
you know, if you're gay, you can become ex-gay. And then I found books on the left that said, if you're gay, you can get gay married. (laughs) Right. It's not really much in the middle that was trying to say, you know, here's what it feels like to be a gay person who is pursuing a life of chastity because of uh, his or her theological convictions about what scripture teaches. And uh, so, so I, I, I realized kind of to my dismay that if I wanted to read a book like that, I was going to have to write it. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I initially, I initially started writing uh, just sort of in the form of journal entries. And I, I didn't necessarily imagine that it was something I would share very widely. I, I showed what I was writing to several close friends um, at the time. And, and then, you know, gradually people started saying to me, you know, maybe you should publish this because there are probably a lot of Christians in your shoes, you know, mm-hmm. who, who, um, would, would, would have similar stories and they, they are also hoping for a book like this and haven't been able to find one. So that's, that's kind of what, what made me want to think about possibly <laughs> publishing. Gotcha. Yeah. You were scratching, scratching your own itch a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, so you, in that book, you outline, uh, when you started sharing your feelings of same sex, same sex attraction with other people, uh, and, and helpful responses and non-helpful responses. Can you describe some of those for us? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, so I made it to college. I went to Wheaton College near Chicago, and I, I made it there having not told anyone about my sexuality. Yeah. And um, I, 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 I started college sort of with the hope that if I met the right girl, quote-unquote, uh, as I knew many people did at Christian colleges, uh, <laughs> maybe something would, would shift for me. And, yeah. And... Um, you know, it became clear through a series of circumstances that that wasn't going to be happening for me. I, I, I didn't imagine that I would sort of miraculously become ex-gay. And, and so I, I I realized, you know, I have a couple choices here. I, I can either continue on this path of, of secrecy and just hope that somehow I can cope with this on my own, uh, or I can come out, you know, and I can, I can talk with my fellow Christians about what it would look like for me to live a Christian life with ongoing same-sex desire. And I quickly realized that that was going to be the healthier option. Coming out was going to be the healthier option. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's that verse in, in the epistle of First John where uh, John describes the Christian life as a life of walking in the light. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's really what I came to want, although I was scared of it. And and so, you know, it, it was a question for me, who do I talk to? And, and I didn't know. You know, I, did, I, I didn't know immediately who would be the safest person to confide in. And um, what I ended up doing is, is I ended up telling one of my professors first. He was the first person I came out to. And in retrospect, I think what drew me to him was the fact that he was very, very honest about his own, uh, the, the things in his own life that were uh, confusing to him or, or troubling to him. He talked about ongoing depression. Um, you know, he was a very mature Christian believer, you know, deeply rooted in scripture. But he, he said, you know, I, I, I have a battle with depression and, and he was, uh, he was physically, uh, difficult. Um, and so he had, he lived with chronic pain as well. Hmm. Um, and you know, I just remember him saying in class one time, there was a time in his twenties when he was facing a temptation that was so persistent and so dark that the only thing he could do was scream to the Holy spirit to protect him. And I, I remember listening to him say things like that and thinking, you know, I think this guy would understand what I'm going through. He probably is not going through the same thing himself, but he would be uh, a safe person to, to speak with. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, I, I often tell people, um, you know, the main thing he gave me, the main gift that he gave me when 
uh, I met with him was the gift of not being surprised. <laughs> I, I, I walked into his office thinking, you know, man, he's just going to be, he's going to be bowled over when I tell him that I'm gay. And of course he wasn't at all. I mean, I'm sure I wasn't the first student to confess that to him and I, I won't, I, I wasn't the last, I'm sure. <laughs> um, there's a great line from Francis Schaeffer where he says Christians should never have the reaction designated by the term shocked. Hmm. And uh, I, I love that. And, and that was, that was something that my friend, uh, my professor friend did very well. He was not shocked and, and he just assured me that God loved me. And, and he said, you know, let's meet again and, uh, and meet again and again and again. And so we began to meet and, and process things. And, and, you know, from there that opened the door to talking with other people. But, but I think it was, you know, it was, it was, uh, I think it's Brene Brown who talks about, um, or maybe, maybe it's someone else, but I think it's Brene Brown who talks about, uh, you know, when, when we choose to be vulnerable, we offer people the gift of going second. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's what he did for me, you know, by, by, by voicing his own, uh, challenges in his Christian faith, he gave me the opportunity to, to be vulnerable in return. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I was, I was given the gift of going second. And, you know, I, I, I think that, um, I think that 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 really, you know, to go back to what we were talking about earlier with with cultures, you know, like in the South, where maybe vulnerability is harder to come by. Um, you know, I think one of the gifts that we could give to gay and lesbian believers in the church would be creating a climate where uh, their uh, coming out doesn't seem like such a big deal because all of us are coming out with with all the things that we're that yes. we're wrestling. Yes. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a long answer. Sorry. No, no, it's a wonderful answer. I love that idea of. Uh, of not being shocked by anything that anyone would tell us about anything. So, so let's talk a little bit more. Um, I know you've used the term, even as we've been talking ex gay and you've referred to yourself as a gay celibate, uh, Christian. You've gotten some pushback for doing that. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about why you think you've gotten that pushback and, and why you might disagree with the pushback that you've gotten. Hmm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is a question I get a lot. Okay. And I think we need to, um, I, I should maybe say something about, um, kind of the history of these terms. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the term ex-gay, um, is sort of a kind of a slang term, uh, for, for a group of ministries that was really active. I would say really active in the last 30 years, probably in evangelicalism and in, and in Catholicism as well. Um, but, uh, the, one of, one of the key ideas of those ministries was, um, the, the, the thing to do when you realize that, that you're gay and you want to follow Christ is to not take your sexuality as your core identity. Um, and, and the idea uh, operative in those ministries is that, is that that's where we begin to go wrong is when we build a sense of identity around our sexuality. Hmm. And so you, you got a lot of emphasis in, in the ex-gay ministries of, of, of not using the word gay. Um, for yourself anymore, gay or lesbian. And the idea was, um, you know, if you, if you use a term like same sex attracted, you know, rather than gay, that's a way of kind of distancing your, your core identity from the temptations that you experience. Um, so, so a lot of ex-gay ministries would encourage people to say, I am a same sex attracted person rather than I'm a gay man or, or, or a lesbian woman. And, um, um, you know, I think, I think along with that goes, uh, or has gone in these ministries a kind of optimism about the ability to, um, uh, what would be the word I'd want to use? The, the ability to 
live in increasing freedom from these desires themselves, from these temptations. So, so a lot of these ministries, you know, um, if you, if you went on the Exodus International homepage up until, you know, it shut down, the kind of banner in, in big letters on the main page of the website was change as possible. Uh, the idea that you don't have to be gay, you know, you don't, you don't have to let these attractions define you. Hmm. So, um, you know, I think, I think when I get pushback for calling myself gay, it's, it's, it's largely growing out of those kind of perspectives. You know, Wes, aren't you, aren't you, um, building too much of your identity around this word gay? And aren't you also foreclosing on the possibility that God would want to change your desires? You know, God would want to rewire your, your sexuality. So, so that tends to be where the objection comes from. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I guess a couple things I, I would say in response to that. Um, you know, I, 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 I totally agree that gay, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a word that's, that's not, you know, ideal from a Christian standpoint. I mean, it's, it's not a Christian word, you know, it, it's not a theological word. And so, um, in that sense, you know, I, I think that, you know, Christians are right to sort of be suspicious of any label that we might apply to ourselves that's not determined by the gospel or, 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 or Christian faith. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I think, I think we, we sort of identify ourselves, uh, with a lot of words like this. I mean, I call myself an American. I call myself an academic. Uh, you know, I have the word doctor in front of my name because I have a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, I call myself white. You know, there, there's a lot of things, uh, a lot of labels that I take on, um, that I, that I, you know, I think can be genuinely descriptive of things about me without me wanting to claim that they ultimately define who I am as a person before God. Um, so I, I, I tend to want to use gay that way. It's, it's a real descriptor, um, in the sense that it really does name, uh, the orientation that I have. It names the desires that I have. It names the temptations that I have. Mm. And it, it sort of helps me communicate those very quickly. Like if I, if I say to someone I'm gay, you know, they automatically know what I'm talking about. Oh, so Wes is someone who, you know, finds men attractive and, and has romantic inclinations toward men. And so it's just a kind of quick summary description, description of the, of the desires that I feel. But then, of course, I'd want to say in the very next breath, um, you know, the most important thing about me is that I'm baptized. <laughs> it's not that I'm gay or straight or anything else. It's that I'm, I, I belong to Christ. And, um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a couple more things I can say about this. I, yeah. I think, um, I think that, you know, as I, as I get older and as I, as I develop more of a ministry in this whole area and as I have more and more gay and lesbian friends, um, one of, one of the things that I like about calling myself gay is it connects me to the gay community. You know, it connects me to people for whom I have love and who I want to minister to and with. And there's that sense of solidarity, uh, you know, with, with other people who have, gone through the experience of coming out and, and having to figure all this out. And, you know, when I, when I claim the label gay for myself, I'm, I'm knitting myself together with those people. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, you know, I'm one of their tribe and, and that, and that matters to me more and more as I, as I go on in, in kind of ministry in this area. I just, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be positioning myself from, from some lofty height where I'm, I'm sort of beyond where they are. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think the, 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 the last thing I'll say on this is, you know, I, I have a pretty, um, reformed understanding of sanctification where God usually doesn't make us holy in big leaps. Um, 
he usually doesn't deliver us in in really black and white sort of ways. Mm-hmm. He he does his work in us much more slowly. And it, it, you know, if you were going to plot it, it would look like a uh, a sort of um, uh, you know a, a, a mountain range, um, mm-hmm. uh, like like a graph where you know there's there's ups and downs and highs and lows. And I think that some of the ways that the ex-gay movement has talked about homosexuality have have not had that kind of understanding of sanctification in mind. They've they've operated much more with the idea that you know if you if you if you go through the right kind of therapy, if you do the kind of hard work of delving into your childhood, you can be fundamentally delivered from same-sex attraction and you can become opposite sex attracted and and you know i've just talked to enough people to know that is far from the norm that is far from most uh christians experience of this and and so i would i would rather use language that is honest about the fact that i have not experienced any kind of dramatic shift in my sexuality i'm still just as gay as i was at age 14 you know and i'm 35 now yeah and I don't expect, uh, you know, whatever whatever God does with my sexuality, I don't expect that it's going to be some huge dramatic shift. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that 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 helps a little bit. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. I th- yeah, I think that's great. Um, this this isn't an easy uh, topic to discuss. It, I, I just finished your book, Spiritual Friendship, this morning. Actually, I thought okay. it was absolutely uh, stunning. Really, really oh, good thanks. job. Couldn't put it down. I had to put it down when my father-in-law would start talking to me down on the beach, but um, <laughs> other than that, I thought it was wonderful. Um, and you talk about the grayness of this issue. I mean, I, I know some friends who identify as gay. They, they identify exactly the way that you would. I have other friends who have experienced same-sex attraction and continue to, but have also gotten married, feel like they've gotten yeah. some kind of deliverance from that. Um, yeah. and, and on and on the spectrum is, and Mark Yarhouse is really good on talking about the spectrum of, of this issue. Um, so I say all that to say, it's not an easy issue, uh, for, for people to talk about. It's, it's, it's something that you have to, um, use wisdom and discretion and, and, uh, be open-ended with. So anyway, to say all that, uh, what's, as you look at the history of the church speaking on this topic, maybe over the past 50, 60 years, uh, what have you seen that's been helpful? What's been, I think you've talked about some of the, the ways that it hasn't been helpful with some of these ex-gay ministries. Um, but what do you think a, a hopeful path forward for us would be on this? Mm. Mm. Yeah, you know, one of my favorite writers is a woman named Eve Tushnet, and I'm lucky enough to get to be her friend as well in, in real life. But uh, <laughs> uh, so her last name is T-U-S-H-N-E-T, if, if your listeners want to Google her and, and check out her book. But Eve, Eve, for my money, is 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 really pointing us to the way the church needs to go forward. And kind of her big idea is that, you know, the, the main thing that gay and lesbian believers need is not primarily a sense of what they're called to deny themselves. I mean, obviously that's part of the Christian life. We, we deny ourselves certain things because we believe that's what scripture teaches. But, but if you try to build your life around what you're saying no to, uh, that's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, the way Eve says it is you can't have a vocation of no. You can't build a sense of calling around always saying no. You have to build a sense of calling around what you're pursuing, what you're mm-hmm. saying yes to. Yeah. And so, um, Eve has has um, invited us as the church to basically um, approach gay and lesbian believers 
with the question of what what particular vocations are you being called to? How are you being called to give and receive love in the church? Because the assumption is, if they're a baptized Christian, they are called to something. I mean, I mean, God gives every one of us a vocation in the church, and you know, I, I think you know the the traditional biblical um, way of thinking would say, you know, gay and lesbian people are not called to same sex marriage because that's not a Christian vocation. But they are called to something. I mean, it could be uh, committed friendship. It could be a vocation of intentional community. Uh, it could be a kind of celibate uh, commitment to someone else. Um, it could be a calling of, of art. Or, or, you know, your calling is, is how you are called to increase the joy and beauty in the world for the sake of, of the love of God and neighbor. Hmm. Um, and to for me, that is just revolutionary. It's really changed the way I think about this issue because, you know, no longer do I think, well, the main thing is to try to explain in nitty gritty detail why scripture says no to gay sex. And as soon as gay people understand that, well, that's their discipleship. Yeah. No, I mean, that's just like ground zero of their discipleship. <laughs> like, that's not even the main thing. Like The main thing is how can these believers... Uh, have their gifts and their calling nurtured alongside everybody in the church, you know, whether they're straight or bisexual or, or whatever uh, their orientation is. Um, you know, all of us are called to love God and neighbor in particular concrete ways. And um, I would, I, you know, I'm beginning to see churches kind of catch on to that and, and, and explore that. And that gives me a lot of hope in this whole area. Yeah, that's great. That I think that's a, a nice transition into talking uh, about your other book, spiritual friendship, which I just mentioned, you talk about the vocation of, of friendship, mm. committed friendship. Mm. Um, so take us to ground zero there. What, what prompted you to write the book? Who's the target audience? What's the big idea? Yeah. 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 Well, thanks. Yeah. The book, um, so it came out, um, last year in 2015 and it's called spiritual friendship, finding love in the church as a celibate gay Christian. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with how this book turned out. I, I, I tried to really put a lot of my heart into this book and it's been gratifying to see it finding its way to readers. But the main idea of the book is that, um, it, it sort of takes the reader into a discovery that I made uh, a few years ago. You know, I, I actually did not know that there was this long Christian history of celebrating, like publicly celebrating friendship. Um, I just assumed that we always did things the way we've done things now, which is kind of put all of our eggs in the marriage basket and celebrate marriage. And I actually did not know that there were actually formal liturgical ceremonies that, that churches used to, to honor and, and sanctify friendship. And for me, that was, that was a real aha moment because what it said to me is like, even if I'm not called to marriage, um, that does not mean that I'm called to loneliness. That does not mean that I'm doomed to loneliness. You know, I'm actually called to to be in committed relationships with people as a single person. And um, you know, I, I think traditionally the way the church has practiced this is is you know it's it's been um, two people of the same sex who 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 you know maybe make promises to one another or, or choose to to live together. But it doesn't have to be two. You know, my my experience of friendship right now is. Um, I'm in a, a sort of um, intentional community with a, a married couple who are actually expecting their first child uh, here pretty soon. Oh, cool. Um, you know, so we, we share a house together and share meals together and, and pray together and watch TV together. And, and um, you know, so they're, they're married and, and I'm, I'm single, but, but we have this sort of familial kind of um, 
commitment to one another. And, and, you know, they're, they're, um, they've already asked me to be the, uh, godfather to their, to their baby who will be born soon. So, you know, th- those kinds of things where we, where we begin to try to imagine concrete, uh, thick ways for single people and married people to be, to be grafted into, you know, really important and, and vital relationships of, of friendship and commitment with one another. That's the kind of thing I'm trying to promote with the book. And, um, you know, I, I think it, my, my hope for the book is that it will sort of shift the way that we think about our options. I mean, I think if you had asked me when I was 20, what are your options? I would have said, well, I can either get married to a woman, which feels impossible because of my sexuality, or I can kind of muddle along and live a lonely single life. And I now want to try to say, and I wish I could say to my 20 year old self, you know, no, those are not the only two options. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we can begin to imagine um, you know, ways that, ways that married and single can, can belong together in, in a really thick familial sort of way in the church. And, you know, I, I do want to, I do want to say, I don't want to be naive. I think this is countercultural. And I think, I think a lot of people in the church are not quite prepared to imagine this kind of thing. So there, there, there is a lot of loneliness, you know, among my gay Christian friends. And, and I think a lot of us, you know, look at the church's kind of obsession with marriage and family, you know, the whole focus on the family kind of thing. And we, and we wonder, you know, are we actually really do people want to be in, in deep relationships of commitment with us? And so I don't want to, I don't want to pretend that we're there yet, but, but I think that's the direction we need to be moving. Mm-hmm. That's a great vision for the future. I do think that we've made an idol out of the nuclear family in the church. Right. And it's important to realize that we're the family of God <laughs> as a church family. Um, so, yeah, that's great. I, I was actually texting friends as I was finishing the book this morning with your examples of, uh, of uh, the 40-year-old woman who, who had a big house with a, with a big dining room area yes. and having yes. friends over on Sunday nights. I texted a buddy who just bought a house, a single guy, big house with a big dining room area, and said, hey, this could be you. Yeah. Um, so I love I love those ideas of the of the practical ways to experience spiritual friendship in the church. Absolutely, that's great. Um, let's let's talk about friendship a little bit more. Friendships are generally found in institutions like church or school or uh, in college, you have fraternities and sororities. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I, a lot of people that I talk to have difficulties finding friendships later in life after mm-hmm. they get done with college. Um, mm-hmm. So what advice, you just gave advice to your 20-year-old self, but what advice would you give to a 20 or 30-something who desires community and is struggling to find it or, or keep it once they do find it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge question. And, I mean, I've just been reading there are now friendship apps. You know, we have dating apps, <laughs> there are now friendship apps. That no will way. help you with this. So, oh, my uh, gosh. A lot of people are thinking about this. There, there's actually a piece, a, a really good piece, um, uh, on, on Vox.com by Kate Shellnut. Um, I'm actually looking at it on my computer right now as we talk, but, uh, the, the title of it, you guys might want to Google it if you're listening, is Why 30 is the Decade Friends Disappear and What to Do About It. Huh. Um, and she sort of talks exactly like you're saying about this problem of, um, you know, once we move out of dorm living, let's say in college, you know, now we're, we're, you know, most likely we're at more of a distance from our friends geographically. You know, maybe we live across town and maybe we're lucky if we get to see them every other week or something. Whereas, you know, when we lived in a dorm, we were seeing them every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a hard thing because sociologists tell us that, 
friendships really thrive on regular unplanned interactions. And you know, that's why a dorm is so conducive to friendship because you're just regularly bumping into each other without having to plan it. And you're, 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 you're having spontaneous conversations and, and games and, and, you know, meals together. And it's, it's very hard to do that when you're, when you're in your thirties, you know, maybe you're, you're, you know, once you have kids, you've got sports games to get them to. And if you're single, you, you know, you might be working long hours and coming back to an apartment. And, uh, you know, there's just, there's a lot of forces kind of working against us as we, as we get older, maintaining friendships. And, um, you know, th- this, this article that I mentioned by, by Kate Shilna, she, she concludes the article by saying, um, she's, she's going to start initiating, uh, more, um, she says, you know, I'm going to introduce myself to more people, even the ones whose names I should know by now, you know, at, at church, for example. <laughs> I have to go to more events, text more invites, and trust myself more. These are habits I want to start now before I resign myself to my own routines and consider the whole endeavor hopeless, you know. And I, I think that's I think that's good, you know, kind of putting yourself out there for friendship, as it were, you know, looking for um, uh, maybe groups to volunteer in so that you can meet more people who might become friends or, or, you know, maybe joining that small group at church that you've been putting off so that you're, you know, more likely to rub shoulders with people once a week rather than just once a month or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think, I think I want to say, and, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm not just pointing the finger here. I, I, I want to say, um, that as I've talked with some of my married friends, uh, who are Christians, a lot of them are beginning to feel like the burden is on them, uh, you know, kind of rightly so. My friend Matthew Loftus, who's a columnist for Christianity Today, he he wrote a piece recently where he 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 said, you know, married folks, the burden is on us to try to invite single people over, and and you know, we're we're the ones who actually um, uh, are are often. Um, you know, a, a bit more able to practice hospitality than, than single people. You know, we, we have a kind of routine that we can invite single people into. And I, I, I do think he's right about that. I mean, I think, I think the church should kind of view um, the lonely in their congregation as their problem. It's not just the problem of the people who are lonely themselves, but it's the problem of all of us. You yeah. know, uh, um, um, you know I, I guess I think, for example, of how um, I think of how the pro-life movement has matured over the years. And, and one of the ways that it's matured is we have said, you know, abortion is not just a problem that single mothers have to deal with. It's a problem that our community as a whole has to deal with. Yeah. You know, how are we going to become the kind of community that would make it possible for an individual woman to choose life? And uh, I, I sort of think about that as an analogy of what I'm trying to do. You know, how can we become the kind of church where it's we don't we don't place all the obligation on the lonely to figure out friendship for themselves. Mm-hmm. We take, we take their burden on ourselves and and sort of find a way to fold them into our 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 lives. Um, and 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 you know not just viewing them as charity cases, but genuinely welcoming them into their, into our lives so that we can receive their gifts. You know, everybody has gifts. Everybody has a calling in the church and including the lonely, <laughs> including gay and lesbian people. And, and, you know, our, our, our job is not just to dispense, uh, charity toward them, but to, to receive love from them, mm-hmm. you know, all out their love and their gifts in the church. Yeah. And, and I think you do a really nice job talking about that in your book because you describe, um, your relationships with married couples where it was a shared responsibility thing. So right. it, it wasn't, the married couple is going to take in the single person and bear all of his or her burdens. It was a, 
we're going to make meals together and we're going to give each other rides and we're going to, we're bearing each other's burdens together. Well, and I, I quickly discovered, you know, when I was in graduate school, um, and I would, I would go over to the apartment of a, of a married couple friend of mine. Um, you know, I was, I was able to offer them something that they really needed, which was adult company and conversation, which, you know, if I hadn't been single, if I hadn't been able to go over there at nights, they wouldn't have been able to go out because they had to to bed and be there. And so it was, it was actually my singleness that, that, that allowed me to offer them the gift of my friendship. Mm -hmm. And they would say that to me, you know, and that was, that was encouraging that it wasn't just me. Uh, receiving pity from them, but it was actually me giving something to them that mattered to them. Totally. I love that. Um, okay, let's talk uh, one more idea about uh, friendship here, and then we'll transition into a few rapid-fire questions, and then we'll wrap up. Sure. Um, and and you talk about this idea in your book as well. If I, I can't promote it enough. Go get Spiritual Friendship if you haven't read it. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Um, but I wanted to talk about the... Uh, you talk about the idea of friendship as a type of of marriage when you are in a committed friendship with one another it's a it can be a covenantal thing if you choose to make mm-hmm. it that way um and you discuss a scenario where there was sort of a for lack of a better term there was a divorce in a friendship mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. um where yeah it, it got cut off and and it never really recovered back into mm-hmm. what you thought it might be um maybe you could talk about that scenario specifically or just about this general idea of you commit yourself to a friend um, things change in a way uh, where it feels like it can't get back to where it was or what it was, or maybe it shouldn't get back to where it was or what it was. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm just interested where you find that line and saying, okay, I think it is time for me to move on from this friendship. Yeah, yeah. Yes, in the book I tell the story of, um, you know, the complicated story of me as a same-sex attracted person basically falling in love with a straight male friend of mine and realizing that I was uh, sort of desiring more from the friendship than my friend was able to give mm. and the the sort of painful um, uh, dissolution of that, of that friendship as a result. And I felt that it was important to tell that story because I think so much writing about friendship can quickly slide into the area of just unrealistic sort of fairy tale uh, romance, you know, just like we can sort of um, overlook how painful and difficult marriage can be when we're celebrating marriage. I think we can also overlook how difficult and painful friendship can be, you know, yeah. when we're in friendship. And yeah. so I, I needed to try to find a way to be honest about how friendship can actually be quite disappointing and it can, it can involve a lot of hurt. Um, I, w- I will say on this question, something that's really helped me has been, um, St. Aelred of Riveau, who, who um, you know, lived in the 12th century, he was the abbot of Riveau Abbey in the north of England. He wrote a book uh, called Spiritual Friendship, so I stole my title from Aelred. <laughs> but but he, he, he asks this question, you know, is it ever right to, to divorce a friend or to leave a friend? And, and um, his answer is really subtle, and it's really helpful and interesting. He, he basically says, Christians are obligated to love everybody. Uh, we're obligated to love even the people who are persecuting us, even the people who are hating us. So whatever happens with a friend, we're never free from the obligation to love them. But he says that if friendship is about reciprocity and friendship is about mutuality, you know, it's it's not just me 
loving you, but it's you loving me back. And it's us kind of having that spark of, of mutual attraction uh, to each other and, and sort of mutual care for each other. Um, Elred says, you know, friendship is, is having no qualms about entrusting your heart and all of its contents to your friend mm-hmm. and knowing that your friend won't betray your trust mm-hmm. you know, knowing that you can have absolute confidence in, in your friend. And Elred says, what, ha- what, what can happen is that a friend will, will break that trust. You know, a friend can betray you just like Judas betrayed Jesus. And you don't stop loving your friend in that moment, but you stop you stop entrusting your heart to them in the same way because you know that if you do, they're going to spread your secrets far and wide. You know, they're, they're not reliable in that way anymore. And so Elred says, you know, a friendship we, we, we break off a friendship at that point. If we can't trust someone anymore, we can't have friendship with them anymore, but that doesn't mean that we stop praying for reconciliation. And it doesn't mean that we stop hoping that they will become a friend again in the future at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, in other words, we continue to love them even as we withdraw from them because they've shown themselves to be not trustworthy anymore. And I think, you know, that, that's, that's always tricky to work out in real life. You know, when have you, when have you reached that point where someone is not trustworthy anymore? But I think that is a kind of good rule of thumb is that, you know, if, if friendship is all about, um, you know, I'm able to share my secrets with you. You're able to share your secrets with me. Well, if one of the friends becomes untrustworthy, then you can't have that definition of friendship anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of just by definition. So, um, that, 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 that would be my quick answer. <laughs> to, to <laughs> no, I think that's helpful. I, th- I think you're right. It does get in, in contrasting it to marriage. I know I've broken my wife's trust before mm-hmm. a- and yet we've promised to never leave each other. So, no matter how many times I break her trust or she breaks my trust, we're, we're there for each other. So I, I think figuring that out with friendship is difficult. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think, um, um, you know, part of what I'm trying to say in this book is that friendship, uh, you know, one of the ways we've learned to talk about it in the modern world is it's based purely on uh, mutual attraction. And if I stop being attracted to you or like you, then I can stop being friends with you. And a lot of the Christian uh a lot of Christian history has said no to that. You know, a lot of Christian history has said friendship is actually more like a commitment. It's more like a bond mm-hmm. and you don't just write someone off if they, if they stop pleasing you in the way, in the way that they did before. So I, I think, I think, you know, the, the marriage analogy is really helpful to me. I mean, there, there, there seem to be certain friendships where at some point along the way, the friendship transitions into being something more like family, something more like a spouse. Yeah, and if you even if you get annoyed as hell with the person, you <laughs> you, you you still are committed to them. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I think that's helpful. That's good. Cool. Um, okay, let's do. Uh, I've got four rapid fires here, and then we'll close. Um, okay. All right. Okay. Favorite TV show, movie, or book that you've read recently, or watched recently? Okay. Um, I'm gonna go with book. So okay. I have just discovered uh, the British mystery novelist Ruth Rendell, um, and uh, my friend John Wilson put me onto her. But she she the first book I read uh, by her is called The Lake of Darkness, and it's an absolutely chilling uh, sort of murder mystery tale. And I I, I love those. So I I, uh, I I'd say that's that's my favorite of the books I've read recently. Okay, great. And I'll I'll link to uh, all these resources that we mentioned. Okay. Great, great. So these will be in the show notes, along with everything else, else that Wes has mentioned today. We'll make sure to, to link to those at uh, www.parkchurchdenver.org 
slash podcast. So if you guys want to check any of these out, they'll be uh, up there. Um, and I'm going to add my favorite TV show. I saw that you tweeted about this yesterday, and, and my wife and I just started this last night. There's a new show on Netflix called Stranger Things. Oh, yes. It's amazing. Yeah, it's very good, huh? Yeah, really, really good. Um, so check out Stranger Things and check out Ruth Rendell's, what was the name of it? Uh, the Lake of Darkness. The Lake of Darkness. Okay, great. Um, nerdiest thing that you're into right now? Uh, well, that would probably be Stranger Things. I don't, I don't want to admit how many episodes I've watched in the past 48 hours, but it, it's a lot. It's sort of a it's sort of a Stephen King esque uh, horror slash suspense show on Netflix, and uh, I'm I'm glad to hear that you and your wife are into it because I'm I'm hooked. It's great, and it you really do feel like you're in the 1980s when you're watching it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. Great. Uh, now here's I asked Mike Cosper this question as well. I'm going to ask every guest until the election. Who are <laughs> who are you planning to vote for, or how are you choosing to think about this upcoming election? Gosh, that's a big question. Um, so, truth be told, I am still deciding who I will vote for. Um, I know that I can't vote for Trump. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm weighing the the pros and cons of of voting. Um, Third party. Um, I, I've I've read an essay by the Catholic philosopher Alistair McIntyre about the appropriate thing to do when uh, you're faced with two uh, unacceptable options is simply to opt out. So he argues for not voting, which I'm not exactly comfortable with as a as a citizen of this democracy. But I'm I'm weighing that, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm as I'm as depressed as I've ever been about the political scene. So I I. I'm afraid I can't answer other than I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Mike told me he was going to write in uh, Bart Simpson, so you guys are in a okay. similar boat, it sounds like. Um, okay, last question. Any new uh, writing projects in the works that we can be looking forward to? Well, I just turned in uh, an essay that I'm pretty excited about for the next issue of Christianity Today, um, and it, it sort of is an essay describing my encounter with the gospel of Mark in college. Uh, I, I went through a phase where Mark quickly became my favorite of the four gospels. And I try to explain why that is in this essay. So, uh, you can keep an eye out for that. It should be in the September issue of Christianity today. Okay. Awesome. We'll be looking for that. And, uh, and people can find your work at, uh, spiritualfriendship.com and, uh, spiritualfriendship.org.org. Sorry about that. Problem. And they can they can find uh, Washed and Waiting and and Spiritual Friendship on Amazon. That's uh, right. Yeah. Any, anywhere else we should point folks to find your stuff? Um, there are links on on my website spiritualfriendship.org, but Amazon is probably the the easiest uh, place to go. So thanks so much, James, for oh, highlighting those. Yeah, yeah, and thanks for coming on. We we really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much. It's been my pleasure. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks, James. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's uh, discussion with Wes Hill. Again, we mentioned a lot of resources, and you can find those uh, in the show notes at parkchurchdenver.org slash podcast. Click on the link that says Wesley Hill Interview. Again, two things that I'd ask you to do as we close. Number one, subscribe in iTunes so that you don't miss out when we post the next episode. And number two, uh, while you're in there, go ahead and rate and review the show. That will make it easier for other people to find us. Finally, uh, I'm always available at james at parkchurchdenver.org. I'd love to hear any thoughts that you had, what you enjoyed about today's episode. Feel free to shoot me an email there. 
would love to hear from any of you. Uh, that'll do it for this week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Take care.